strange stories of peculiar people and extraordinary events throughout history. This is Notorious Narratives. Welcome to Notorious Narratives. I'm Jen. And I'm Robin. And tonight I'm going to talk to you about the Rasputin of the Bronx. Wow, that was good. <laughs> that was a fucking loud that one. echoed everywhere. So Rasputin, um, as many of you may know, and if you do not know, maybe we'll do an episode at some point. I just, I don't know. For me, I feel like everyone knows this. When Rasputin so. was actually assassinated, it took a lot of attempts. He was a man who could not be killed. <laughs> when I was a kid, <laughs> my dad used to call me Rasputin. Oh, whoa. Wait, what? Huh? Oh, yeah. Now, we're not Russian. I don't know anything about Rasputin as a child. Knowing as an adult a little bit more about Rasputin makes me feel like it wasn't such a cute nickname. Well, in the Disney movie uh, Anastasia, he is the villain, Rasputin. Um, Rasputin was a villain. I know, I know, I know, I know. But I'm saying that, like, I think that a lot of people associate with the name because of that and it brought them information on it. And then they learned more when they were in school. And then even more so, why did my dad call me Rasputin? Anyway, was that the villain of the family? All I did was read books. No, you're you were hard to kill. <laughs> I no, know. I think I think that you were just you were the person that everyone just listened to. Mm-hmm. They feared you. Have that power. I, I was never called anything. Actually, I, I doubt they even knew I was in the room. I mean, that's the way it felt to me. Was that like no one knew I was in the room? Anyway, this is a story of Michael Malloy, known as the Rasputin of the Bronx. It's like the beginning of a bad joke. An undertaker, a florist, and a cab driver walk into a bar. (laughs) Except this story does not have a snappy punchline, but rather the start of a dastardly murder plot that was conceived over a round of drinks. I was going to say, all three of those people are my friends. (laughs) It's like undertaker, a florist. What was the other one? A cab driver. Or an Uber driver. It's fine. I mean, everyone has a friend who's driven for Uber. One afternoon in July of 1932, Francis Pasqua, Daniel Kreisberg, and Tony Marino sat in Marino's speakeasy and raised their glasses, a cheers to a fine plan for quick cash. They figured the job was already half finished. How difficult could it possibly be to push Michael Malloy to drink himself to death? Every morning, the old man showed up at Marino's place in the Bronx and requested another morning's morning, if you don't mind, in his muddled brogue. Hours later, he would pass out on the floor. For a while, Marino had let Malloy drink on credit, but he was no longer able to pay his tab. Business, the saloon keeper confided to Pasquale and Kreisberg, is bad. So here we are, 1932. It's uh, Great Depression. Prohibition is still going on. So this joint that Marino has, it seems that, you know, he's there. Clearly, he's, you know, performing illegal activities by selling alcohol. But people are coming in and they're consistently drinking, but they're not consistently paying so he's having a little money trouble. So Pasquale, who was a 24-year-old undertaker, looked at over at Malloy, whose glass of whiskey was hoisted to his slack mouth, and said, hmm, what about him? So, so they look over. They're sitting there in the bar talking about their money troubles. They're trying to figure out a way to make some money. And they look over, and they see this man, Michael Malloy, who's a regular there at the bar who owes a ton of money to the bar owner. And nobody knows anything about him. And even when he's questioned, Malloy himself can't really tell people where he's from, can't tell them if he has any family. He just says that he grew up in Ireland. So there's not a lot of story to him. He's not homeless, but not, um, certainly doesn't have like a family um, that anyone knows about. 
But it does turn out that he was a former firefighter. So I guess he was made of some pretty tough stuff. I mean, can you imagine being a firefighter in the 1920s? 1930s? Oh, my God. Yeah, 1920s, 30s. Like, it's pretty much a death sentence, like, just walking in the door. So if he's made it this far, I'm sure he's got reasons to be drinking every what, day. Did it say what area? It's the Bronx. Oh, oh I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Because like I'm, 168th Street. Because immediately I was like, oh, the fire of Chicago. <laughs> I was like, was he involved in that? No, because he's from the Bronx. But, I mean, who knows where he came from? Mm, that's right? true. So no one really knows his full backstory. I was like, there's fires everywhere. So Malloy had no friends, no family, and no definitive date of birth. Everyone guessed that he was around 60 years old. He seemed to have no apparent trade or vocation beyond the occasional odd job of sweeping alleys or collecting garbage, happy to be paid in alcohol rather than money. In one newspaper article, it said that he was part of the flotsam and jetsam in the swift current of underworld speakeasy life. There was no longer responsible derelicts who stumbled through the last days of their lives in a continual haze of bowery smoke. So Pascal and Marino sitting there at the bar, look over. They say, why don't we take out an insurance policy on Malloy? I don't know Malloy, but being a firefighter in the 20s and early 30s, mm-hmm. and apparently he's, Maybe even before then, because he yeah. was 60s, so oh, maybe so 40 10? years prior. Wow. Yeah, 1890s, maybe. He probably drove the first ever fire truck. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm like, sure he had a story. Everyone has a story. He just was too drunk to really tell anyone his story. Which means that he, that, which means there's a reason why he was there, you know? Right, which is sad like, in its own way. Yeah, exactly. He could have, And now know. this guy must have taken an insurance policy on him. Right. Hi, everybody. I'm Katie Segal. And I'm Kurt Sutter. And welcome to our new podcast called Pi, People, Influences, and Experiences. Yes, it's sort of the... Uh, get to know you at a deeper level, the who, what, when, where, and why you are, rather than what it is you do. Absolutely. We're not going to talk too much about what people do. We just want to know about their families, where they come from, you know, what shapes their parenting, if they have kids, what shapes their marriages, if they're married. We just want to be really nosy. We want to get in there. A deep dive into nature and nurture. And we started it because there are a lot of people that we don't know that we are curious about. Right. And I have no friends, so for me, it's, you know. Trying like, to get them out of the house. Listen to it on whatever you listen to <laughs> podcasts on. Yeah, podcast, your, homecasts. Your, 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 your podcasting apparatus. Watch it on the YouTube. He's aging himself. So they hatch this plan, and they say, hey, let's take out an insurance policy on this guy, and I'll take care of the rest. So it turns out that um, Pascal, who's sitting there at the bar with him, and Marino, who owns the bar, turns out that Pascal knows that Marino has kind of done this before. So the prior year, Marino, who was 27 at the time, had befriended a homeless woman named Maybell Carson and convinced her to take out a $2,000 life insurance policy naming him as the beneficiary. How does one do that? I mean, you know, he plies her with booze. He's like, you know what you should do? You should take out an insurance policy. It's like people today. You'll never, you'll never have to ever, pay for a drink here. Don't ever send money to people who message you. Be like, hey, I want to come and see you. <laughs> no, no, no. I think this is a woman he knew face to face. Oh, God. Yeah. So I think that it was probably a little bit more like, oh, you're drinking in my bar. Like, instead of paying me, why don't you take out a life insurance policy? Then when you die, at least I'll get paid for your booze. 
Right? I mean, who knows? I, I wish it works everywhere. Oh, I'm sorry. I can't pay for my for my rent, but don't worry. You can be part of my life insurance policy. I'll put policy you in my life insurance just, policy. When I'm, when I'm done, you can have. So apparently it was a little bit well known throughout the neighborhood that Marino had done this uh, sort of insurance fraud situation before with this woman, Maybelle Carson. One frigid night, he force-fed her alcohol, stripped off all her clothing, doused the sheets and mattress with ice water, and pushed the bed beneath an open window. Froze her to death. Froze her to death. And she was too drunk. To say I'm cold? To wake up and do anything about it. Oh, my God. So she died of hypothermia. How black out could she have been? <gasps> oh pretty, pretty God. fucking drunk. So the medical examiner listed her cause of death as bronchial pneumonia. And Marino collected the money without incident. Marino nodded, motioned to Malloy. Looks like he's all in. He ain't got much longer to go anyway. So they just assumed that since he was so close to death anyway, probably because he was clearly going to drink himself to death, if given the opportunity, that they decided to afford him the opportunity. He and Pascal glanced over at Daniel Kreisberg, who was a 29-year-old grocer and a father of three, who would later say that he participated in this scheme for the sake of his family. He nodded in agreement, and the gang set into motion a macabre chain of events that would earn Michael Malloy cult immortality by proving him nearly immortal. Pascal offered to do the legwork, paying an unnamed acquaintance to accompany him to meetings with insurance agents. This acquaintance called himself Nicholas Mellory and gave his occupation as a florist, a detail that one of Pascal's colleagues in the funeral business uh, was willing to verify. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it took Pascal five months and this connection with an unscrupulous agent to secure three policies, all affording double indemnity on Nicholas Mellory's life, two with Prudential Life Insurance Company and one with the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. So what he had done is he had gotten this guy to go pretend to be this Nicholas Mellory character and take out all these life insurance policies. But of course, Nicholas Mellory was going to be Michael Malloy when they murdered him. Because since no one really knew his identity, all they had to do was yeah. say, oh, that's my friend Nicholas Mellory. Yeah. And it's so convenient that the florist, which just happens to provide for the funeral home, is also in on it. Blah, 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 So Pascal recruited Joseph Murphy, a bartender at Marino's, to identify the deceased, uh, my, the deceased body of Michael Mellory and claim to be his next of kin and beneficiary. It all went as planned. Pascal and his cohorts would split $3,576, which is equivalent to about today $54,000 after Malloy had died. Is it worth it? I mean, it seems like not that much money yeah. to be splitting. Oh, Jesus, how many people are involved now? Four or five? Like nine? Seems like way too many people are involved. <laughs> Part one, if you're going to come up with this kind of scam, you got to keep your circle tight. But it seems like a lot of people are involved, and fifty four thousand dollars, even by today's money, isn't enough to be like. I mean, if anything, a I poor mean, retired firefighter. This happened in a bar. Of course, you're just gonna be like, anyway. you know, the person two seats down, be like, "Do you hear what they're doing?" Yeah. So everybody knew. So Michael. So the plan was after Michael Malloy died, they would send this man in. He would say that it was Nicholas Mallory, say that he was his next to Ken, and he would collect the money. And they would all split this $54,000 in today's money. So the murder trust, as it would, uh, as later they would be called, now include Marino's regulars, including petty criminals John McNally and Edward Tenier Smith. So called because he had an artificial ear that was made of wax. So cool. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, I thought you would enjoy that. I like that. Anyway, then there was also a man named Tough Tony Bastone. Tough um, Tony. 
<laughs> and his slavish sidekick, Joseph Maglioni. So, I mean, geez, there are too many there, cooks there, in the kitchen there's here. There's 12 now. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's a softball game going on. Right. Everyone who plays softball, I mean, softball is, is in on this whole thing. They have like, they have like a pinch hitter. They have so many people on their fucking softball team. They it's have a badminton team. <laughs> they have extras. Shit's gotten real with their fucking little birdies. Here we go. Things things are going on. <laughs> so one night in December 1932, they all gathered at the speakeasy to commence the killing of Michael Malloy. To Malloy's undisguised delight, Tony Marino granted him an open-ended tab, saying competition from other saloons had forced him to ease up on his rules. No sooner did Malloy down a shot than Marino refilled his glass. Malloy had been a hard drinker all of his life, and so on and on he oh, drank. Oh, how, how, how long would it have taken for him to get so blackout drunk? <laughs> oh, this is great. So, oh, he, 13 hours later. <laughs> I mean, am I close? So, so much more, Robin. Oh. So, he drank until Marino's arm was tired from holding the bottle. I mean, remarkably, how his old breath- is that guy? 27. Marino is 27. Well, I'll give my money on the six year old before I turn It's like I think about like those old dudes who used to like day drink at Connections. I know. The I Blackberry know. Brandy, like down the hatch, down the hatch, down the hatch. You would. Yeah. Jesus, I mean, Michael Malloy, right? Michael Malloy. So, I mean, I think you've all seen them, no matter where you've been to have drinks before. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you've ever frequented a bar, you see those people where you're like, you could not Damn. kill them. You could not kill that guy by giving him alcohol. Anyway, they believed that they could kill Michael Malloy by giving him alcohol. So, after the bartender's arm was so tired from holding the bottle, though Malloy's breathing remained steady and his skin retained its normal ruddy tinge, finally... He dragged a grungy sleeve across his mouth and thanked his host for the hospitality and said he'd be back soon. Within 24 hours, he was. Oh, so fuck he, with an Irishman. He drank That's and the drank moral and drank. of the story. Do not try to outdrink an Irishman. You, you just cannot do you it. can't do right. it. I mean, mm, a Russian might be able to. If it was vodka. Not whatever this guy's pouring. Well, I mean, it's prohibition, so essentially uh, he's pouring... Wood alcohol. Anyway, he's pouring like household cleaners. Yeah. Um, Mixed with water. Yeah. Oh, maybe that's why it didn't take an effect. Malloy followed his pattern for three days straight, pausing only long enough to eat a complimentary sardine sandwich. Mm. Oh, cr- it's so crunchy. No, 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 no. Have you eaten a sardine? I've sat next to someone who did. Can't eat And even... I don't like the noise it made, so I chose bones, not to. because they eat involved. the bones. Mm-hmm. Anyway, beware sardine sandwiches cool. if you have the gout. Anyway, Marino and his accomplices were at a loss. Uh, maybe they hoped that Malloy would choke on his own vomit or fall asleep and hit his head. Okay. But on the fourth day, Malloy stumbled into the bar, exclaiming, Boy, ain't I got a thirst. Keep him coming, Malloy. <laughs> but tough Tony grew impatient, suggesting that someone simply shoot Malloy in the head. But Murphy recommended a more suitable solution. How about we exchange Malloy's whiskey and gin over to wood alcohol? There we go. Drinks containing just 4% wood alcohol could cause blindness. Mm -hmm. And by 1929, over 50,000 people nationwide had died from the effects of impure alcohol. So they would serve Malloy not shots tainted with wood alcohol, but wood alcohol straight up. Marino Marino thought it a brilliant plan, declaring that he would give all of the drink that he wants and just let him drink himself to death. Kreisberg allowed a rare display of enthusiasm. Yeah. Feed him those wood alcohol cocktails and see what happens. He served Malloy shots of cheap whiskey to get him feeling good. 
and then made the switch. The gang watched, rapt, as Malloy downed several shots and kept asking for more, displaying no physical signs other than his normal level of inebriation. But he didn't even know what he was drinking, so he just kept drinking, and apparently it didn't hurt him at all. He drank all of the wood alcohol that he was given and came back for more. That's my boy! Night after night, the scene repeated itself, with Malloy drinking shots of wood alcohol as fast as Murphy could pour them. Until the night until the night he crumbled onto the floor without warning, the gang fell silent, staring at the jumbled heap at their feet. Pesquale knelt down by Malloy's body, feeling his neck for a pulse, lowering his ear to see if he felt his breath. Bring out the mirror. The man's breath was slow and labored. They decided to wait, watching as the sluggish rise and fall of his chest should be any minute now. Finally, a long, jagged breath. Is it a death rattle? <sighs> Just Malloy starting to snore. <laughs> and he awakens some hours later. I'm sorry. I love this guy. He's fantastic. <laughs> and he awakens some hours later, rubbing his eyes and said, give me some of the old regular, me lad. My Irish grandpa, he passed away when, when my mom was a baby. So I never met him. But I kind of wish that he was like this kind of dude. Be like, bring it on. Let's do this. Yeah. Just powerful and just be like rock rock steady. I mean, I think he was anything but rock steady. <laughs> he seems like someone that is just like really hard to take down because he is just like, yeah, no, try it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they did. And, and they, they did. They do. So the plot to kill Michael Malloy at this point became a little cost prohibitive. The open bar tab, the cans of wood alcohol, the monthly insurance premiums. His tab just went on just and on. Just starting and on to, on. like, the, the, you know, it's costing quite a bit of money to kill this man. Is it being more than what his insurance policy is? Pretty much at this point. Yeah, They're yeah. like, Jesus. So Marino fretted that his speakeasy was going to go bankrupt. Tough Tony once again advocated brute force. But Pasquale had another idea. Malloy had a well-known taste for seafood. Oh. So they said... Why don't we drop some oysters into denatured alcohol and let them soak for a few days and then serve them to Malloy? No, 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 right? no, no. So now we're mixing bad seafood with bad alcohol while he's drinking wood alcohol. Alcohol <laughs> taken during a meal of oysters. So they're like, he's going to die from this like mix, right? This is going to do him in. This is going to be what it is. As, as planned, Malloy ate them one by one, savoring each bite, and washed them down with a cold drink of wood alcohol. Marino, Pasquale, and the rest played pinochle and waited, just waiting and waiting. But just merely licked his fingers, belched, and said thank you, and off he went. So did this guy have a liver, or do you think that maybe he had like a zipper on his side of his body and he unzipped it? It was actually a sponge, out, and he took it, it out and put it back. Put it back in and zipped it back up. Kind of what it seems like. Kind of what it seems like. So, mm. at this point, killing Malloy was just a matter of fucking pride. That it had nothing to do with the payoff at this point. They just needed to figure it out. <laughs> we need to kill this dude, like, right now. It feels like a Hitchcock movie. <laughs> like, I'm not I'm not rooting for the killers, but I'm kind of like, all right, guys, like, what the fuck? It's just a story that seems... <laughs> Come on. When I read the story, I said, there's no way that this is true. It seems like the plot of a Hitchcock film. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem real. But it is. Freaking a Hitchcock. It's, it's like like the guy's in a hangover. You know, this kind of like comedic kind of things. How can we kill this one guy? And you know what? All You're the right. It is a little a, bit more a, like the it's hangover. It's a hangover. You know, like yeah. trying, like those guys. It's like guys. the hangover meets rope. Yes. Right. Murphy's turn. This is the bartender. So he has a plan 
for the next way that they're going to kill him. He says, let's get a tin of sardines. And we're going to let them rot for a bunch of days. Then we're going to mix in some shrapnel. Then we're going to slather the concoction onto some pieces of bread. And we're going to give it to Malloy as a sandwich. I'm getting him shrapnel? I mean, like you said, sardines are crunchy. I know. Yeah, they are. So you just mix a little bit of metal in there. Yeah, but, you know, they're crunchy enough not to break teeth. I mean, shrapnel is fine. Like Uh, sardine boat dust. Is it? Okay. But except that it's metal shavings, it'll cut you on the inside. That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking of metal shavings. What well, like, is metal shavings? Yeah. But I'm thinking like the like little mind. like curlicues. Yes. Uh, oh, oh shit. Give Malloy the sandwich. Any minute they thought, as they wait, the metal would start slashing through his organs. Instead, Malloy finished the tin sandwich and asked for another. Oh Jesus Christ! <laughs> the gang called an emergency conference. <laughs> they didn't know what to make of this Rasputin of the Bronx. So that's where he gets the name. Like at this point, like oh, they're just so trying to he kill wasn't him. Really a bad guy. He was just a guy who and just kill him and die. They just keep trying to kill him. And so for Rasputin, there was a ton of assassination attempts, mm-hmm. and he just wouldn't die. Kind of the same thing. Anyway, so Marino recalled his success with Maybell Carlson and suggested that they ice Malloy down and leave him outside overnight that evening. Marino and Pascal tossed Malloy into the back seat of Pascal's Roadster, drove in silence to Crotona Park, and lugged the unconscious man through heaps of snow. After depositing him on a park bench, they stripped off his shirt and dumped bottles of water on his chest and head. When Marino arrived at the speakeasy the next day, he found Malloy's half-frozen form in the basement. Somehow, Malloy had trekked the half-mile back and persuaded Murphy to let him in. (laughs) When he came to, he complained of a wee chill. I was so cold. I got I got to read chill. February neared, and another insurance payment was coming due. One of the gang, John McNally, wanted to run so, Malloy over with a car. So they're paying for his insurance every month. Insurance. <laughs> they're trying to kill him. <laughs> it's just too fucking much. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> I'm crying. One of the gang, John McNally, wanted to run Malloy over with a car. Tinier Smith was skeptical, but Marino, (laughs) Pasquale, Murphy, and Kreisberg were intrigued. Is this guy Wolverine? Is that what we're saying? I mean, maybe he's what based, he's Wolverine's based on. John Maglioni offered the services of a cab driver friend of his named Harry, uh, Henry Green, whose cut from the insurance policy would be $150. So now we're moving up to like our seventh or eighth conspirator. They all piled into Green's cab, a drunken Malloy strewn across their feet. Green drove a few blocks and stopped. Bastone and Murphy dragged Malloy down the road, holding him up crucifixion style by his outstretched arms. Green gunned the engine. Everyone braced. But from the corner of his eye, Maglioni saw a quick flash of light and stopped the car. The cab lurched to a halt. Green determined that it had just been a woman turning on the light in her bedroom, and he prepared for another go. It was that bright of a light in the middle of the street. I think he was just tripping out a little bit because yeah, they're so. they're freaked out. Yeah. At this point, like they've been trying to kill this dude <laughs> for months. They are they're paying for his life insurance. Paying for his life insurance. They keep getting more and more people involved. At this point, they have to know. Well, funny, that no matter like, what, this isn't going to go right. What's funny was I was making a joke earlier. I was like, "What? Like nine people are involved? I think we're pretty much almost at nine. We're, th- we're pretty high <laughs> in there. I think so. So, Green determined it had just been a woman who turned on her bedroom light and prepared for another go. Malloy managed to leap out of the way. Not once, but twice. 
On the third attempt, though, Green raced toward Malloy at 50 miles an hour. Maglione watched through. He's like covering his fingers. He's like, no, no, I can't. With every second, Malloy loomed larger in the windshield. Two thuds. One loud. One soft. The body against the hood and then the body hitting the ground. But for good measure, old Henry Green, what did he do? Went ahead and backed up over him. Mm. Gotta make sure the job's done. The gang was confident that Malloy was dead, but a passing car scared them from the scene, so they were never able to confirm it. So they cheesed it out of there. It fell to Joseph Murphy, who the bartender whose plan was to be the brother. So he had been cast as Nicholas Mullery's brother, who was the person whose life insurance they had taken out. Mm -hmm. So he set about to call all the morgues and hospitals and attempt to locate his missing brother. But no one had any information, nor were there any reports of a fatal accident involving an anonymous drunk or any drunk. So they decided at this point, five days later, as Pascal plotted to kill, they had reached a point where they were like, fuck it. We're going to kill any drunk dude. We're just going to kill someone and get this life insurance policy. Doesn't have to be Malloy. We're just going to move on. We have no idea where he went. So they're at this point, they're like, we're just going to pass off any homeless drunk dude as Mallory and get our money. So at this point, five days later, the door to Marino's speakeasy swung open and in limp, Michael Malloy, looking only slightly worse than usual. His greeting, I sure am dying for a drink. <laughs> and where have you been? <laughs> what a story he had to tell. What he could remember of it anyway. He recalled the taste of whiskey, the cold snap of the night air, and the glare of rushing headlights, and then blackness. <laughs> Next thing he knew, he woke up in a warm bed at Fordham Hospital and only wanted, more than anything, to get back to the bar. Get a drink. Finally, on February 21st, 1933, seven months after the murder trust had first convened, they succeeded in murdering Michael Malloy in a tenement. Near 168th Street, less than a mile from Marino's speakeasy, Malloy's body was found. After he had passed out for the night, the murderers took Malloy to Murphy's room, put a hose in his mouth that was connected to a gas jet, and turned it on. They finally killed Malloy, with his death occurring within less than an hour. A rubber tube that had run from the gas light fixture to his mouth and towel and was wrapped tightly around his face, and he oh. died of carbon monoxide. Oh, bastards. So, they eventually did get kind of dirty with it. But, they tried to be slick as... Uh, murder conspirators do, I assume. And they decided to get a friend of Pascal's, Dr. Frank Manzella, involved. And he actually filed a false uh, phony death certificate citing lobar pneumonia as the cause of death. The gang received $800 from the Metropolitan Life Insurance Policy. Murphy and Marino each spent their share on a new suit. Pascal arrived at the Prudential office, confident that he would be able to collect the money from the other two policies. But the agent surprised him with a question, well, when can I see the body? Pascal replied, well, he's already been buried. And at that point, the Prudential Insurance Company forced them to exhume Malloy's body. And an autopsy was undertaken. Malloy's body was exhumed and an autopsy was undertaken after Prudential Insurance became suspicious of the murder trust's fraudulent insurance scheme. An investigation ensued. Everyone began talking. And everyone eventually faced charges. Green, who was not happy with his cut, started talking. He was the one who was driving the cab. Police discovered that a homeless woman had died Marino's speakeasy under suspicious circumstances and that Marino was the sole beneficiary of her life insurance policy. Oh, you fuckers. <laughs> then, on a separate matter, tough Tony Bastone was shot dead and Joseph Maglioni was charged with his murder. When did tough Tony go? Man, these people, you know what you can never trust? Freaking tough Tony. Can never trust a group of murderers. So... Before long, there was enough evidence to arrest the remaining murder trust. Frank Pascal, 
Tony Marino, Daniel Kreisberg, and Joseph Murphy, and they all appeared at the Bronx County Courthouse. First, they tried to plead insanity, but when that didn't work, they tried to implicate each other in the murder. Finally, they accused Beth Stone of Malloy's murder. Of course, blame the dead guy. Nice fucking try. Anyway, it didn't work. In June and July 1934, Pascal, Marino, Kreisberg, and Murphy were executed in Old Sparky, and the charter members of the murder trust were sent to the electric chair at Sing Sing, which killed them on the first try. Harry Green, who was the driver of the cab, Mm -hmm. was the only member of the murder trust to escape execution and instead was sent to prison. Michael Malloy was not only known for being the most stubborn murder victim in history, but he was also one of the first murder cases to ever be investigated by the New York City Medical Examiner's Office. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's where you worked. You You were there for a little bit. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Um, was, was, he, was his stuff still there? No. <laughs> I mean, I don't think so. Because you, you had to do inventory. Oh, they don't. Of things. They of don't, they don't pieces. They don't that long? They don't. I, I didn't see anything that old oh, when no, I was that there. That would have been cool. I would have been cool. Anyway, so in one um, one newspaper article, it said, uh, perhaps the grinning ghost of Mike Malloy was present in the Bronx County Courthouse that day. So while Malloy had led an unremarkable life that would change in his death as he became known as the world's most stubborn murder victim, he would survive five murder attempts and posthumously be known by a variety of nicknames, such as the Rasputin of the Bronx, Iron Mike, and Mike the durable Malloy. That's pretty cool. Iron Mike. Of course, I don't like murder, but this story was was great because this one guy was just like, it was a, it for me it was comedy. I mean, I laughed, I cried, <laughs> like I laughed, I cried. Fuck I those dudes. Nod. You know, they got what they deserved. Seven months it took them seven months to finally do it, and they did it dirty. Can you just too. imagine they did it dirty? You just imagine like this is seven lots months. Of, this is what we have to do every day. They go to the bar and they're like this fucking guy. <gasps> I'm just saying. At the end of the day. The lesson is, never trust a free drink. The story of the Rasputin of the Bronx, Michael Malloy. Just another notorious narrative. Have a show idea? Send it on over to us along with any questions, comments, or corrections to NotoriousNarratives at gmail.com. You can follow us on our Instagram at NotoriousNarratives and Twitter at NotoriousTales. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Every review helps other listeners to find us. Thanks so much.